Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. Today, we are talking about how to calculate and adhere to a calorie deficit. Mm. These topics around, I guess, fat loss and calorie deficits and dieting, they were like some of our best episodes in terms of listens. Um, So I feel like we need to have a little bit more of a chat about it as well, especially coming into December um, and summer in Australia anyways. A lot of people tend to go into fat loss phases during this time of the year, uh, which is so fine. We just want to be able to give people some extra knowledge on how to make sure that they can set themselves up for success. Yeah, and we've done a few episodes on this and naturally we've discussed the topic of dieting and being in a calorie deficit, Um, but it was from more of a different lens when we were still competing. So things were a little bit more or a lot more structured, regimented. Um, We talked about flexible dieting, but it's quite interesting now sort of two, three years out of that phase of our lives, we're still obviously doing diets and things, but it looks a little bit different. So I love that we've been able to try the real rigid tracking, which worked for us. But then personally now it's a little bit more of a flexible approach. So we'll share sort of both views on it. Um, and then you'll be able to find out what's best for you at your current phase in this life right now. Mm, yeah, it is so interesting to reflect back on. Like uh, we've both had fat loss phases where we've had to lose like, you know, anywhere between sort of six to 10 kilos mm. um, off a little frame, right, which is not, which is a lot, a significant amount of someone's body size. Um, so to lose like have to go through like a really rigid thing where like, you know, you, you're telling me off not tracking my cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> I did. That level of extreme. I did. Um, <laughs> You did. Um, that level of extreme to, you know, more flexibility where it's like, hey, you know, I'm actually trying to change behaviors. I'm just trying to tighten things up a little bit, um, you know, improve energy, like all those other areas as well. And of course, lose a little bit of body fat, but looking at the fat loss more as of an outcome um, mm. ra- of the behaviors that you're changing rather than like really pushing and really grinding. And if the scales don't go down, you get more food slashed and have to work harder because there's a consequence um, Mm. if you don't actually lose the weight that you need to. Whereas now, like flipping the script and having like flexibility, I don't know, like it's it's so weird because it's honestly something that I haven't had to do in years, years, like years, the same probably as you. Yeah, I mean, what's your dieting looking like at the moment? I mean, we discussed it maybe three weeks ago-ish or a month. Has has anything changed um, Mm. in terms, yeah, what's happening? Yeah, so probably the last couple of weeks, like full transparency, we've been super flat out with work. So even though I've been sticking to the calories because I haven't gone into an aggressive deficit, I've probably been maintaining over the last fortnight because activity has been quite low. Um, yep. I've only probably been averaging maybe, I don't know, five to 7,000 steps at a maximum, which is pretty mm. low for me, to be honest. Uh, and I know from my body, just from previous experience, I need to push output to get things moving just because I am a smaller human. So the last couple of weeks, I've definitely plateaued a little bit. I'm also due for my cycle and I tend to not want to change things um, leading up to that as well. I just like to make sure that I can get my cycle, let the fluid shift and then sort of start again. It's always a good um, time to do it. So the last couple of weeks definitely um, slowed things down, but I think I've dropped maybe like, I don't know, like a kilo and a half to two kilos over the last 
four weeks, which is pretty good um, in terms of what my outcome was. Not that I was looking at the scales driving the main thing. Um, I probably only step on the scales maybe like a couple of times a week, but it's definitely something that can help you identify whether you're in a deficit or not. So mm. definitely slowed down the last fortnight. Um, I've got no more social events, no more weddings, no more things uh, for leading up to Christmas. So Good. I'll probably just continue on as normal now and then just complete diet break um, over that Christmas, New Year's period where I actually like to have time off tracking um, yep. as well. What about yep. you? Um, yeah, I mean, it. it- I'm going to call it a lifestyle deficit. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say that, but I feel like lifestyle that's what it is. I love it. Deficit. Like I, I feel like that's what it is. So um, my foot was a bit sore, as I mentioned, so I wasn't mm. able to go walking for two, three weeks. It's just come good now. Um, so the walks are back in, which is amazing. And then, yeah, just literally um, still tracking, but then also keeping up my physical activity um, and amongst travels still made sure that I was walking and just hitting protein when I can. But no, it's all staying quite consistent. I'm feeling good for it. Um, Yeah, but for those of you who want a little bit more advice on the rigid regimented way of dieting, which definitely serves a purpose, please listen to our previous episodes. Mm. We're not in that phase in our life anymore and we can totally own that and honour that. Um, work's taking priority, lifestyle's taking priority, lots of different things. We're not going to get up on stage. Obviously, we want to maintain a physique that we're happy with. So it still takes a level of attention to what we're putting in our mouths and, you know, the kind of working out we're doing. Um, But if you're here to learn about all that regimented, structured um, sort of advice, previous episodes. Revert back to 2020, Danny and Cheryl. (laughs) I know, we're, we're done. But it still works. I mean, we had to use those methods not only to get on stage but then to learn about calories in food to learn about macronutrients to learn how our body responds by eradicating all the variables so it definitely served a purpose but we've sort of come out the other end our goals are different but then our level of self-awareness um, and awareness of sort of food and activity is a lot greater so we can be in this phase right now. So if you are new to dieting and tracking, I definitely recommend, you know, getting a coach, learning the nitty gritties, and then you'll be able to have that flexibility a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, like, I think for a lot of people, as you said, Danny, that we have to learn to be really flexible, sorry, really rigid at the start, mm. you know, track your cucumber, because if you don't know that there's nine calories in like a hundred grams, you should be tracking your cucumber. It wasn't the calories that I made you, you're going to bring that up for making me sound like a psychopath. <laughs> but look, when you're competing, some people don't track veggies, but then you know, if you're tracking your fiber, if you're getting really bloated and things, like I definitely recommend tracking vegetables because you might be eating. Once I went through a phase of not really tracking fiber and then I was getting so bloated because my plates of veggies were massive. So that's where the whole tracking cucumber thing came from. It's not the (laughs) calories, guys. I'm not a complete, you know, whatever. Um, It was more from a fibrous and just knowing what you're putting in your body. Dr. Danny's spoken. <laughs> um, it's not me with that one. I had to put it to bed. You're right. It's it's more to do with the habits, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what I meant. Like tracking is a tool, not a rule. And I think at the start, of course, we need to learn and be really like rigid and know like what amount of fibers in what and you know what makes me feel good and what doesn't, yep. etc. All the things, of course. Um, but then as you become more advanced over time, like you become better at doing these things. Like I could easily on 
honestly put myself into a deficit and not track. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually how I started competing. I wouldn't go back to that because I didn't have the knowledge to know probably how little calories I was eating. Um, but I could, I could easily do that because I've been tracking consistently for years the same way that I can have a break over Christmas and New Year's and trust myself that I'm not going to binge on all the food and I'm going to stop when I'm full. Um, and I have that strong relationship um, with tracking, with eating, with dieting. Like it, it's really important. And a lot of the time it's not about the thing. Like this isn't about the calorie deficit and this isn't about the tracking. It's about so much more. Um, and of course, today we're going to have a chat about, you know, some of the calculations and some of the, you know, considerations, I would say, when it comes to setting a calorie deficit. But Danny and I always preach that all those things, habits, behaviors, who you are, relationship with food, they are the number one most important thing before mm. you even look at going into a fat loss phase. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. We're so passionate about all of that. So, yeah, take that super seriously, guys. Um, And just know that, you know, being in a calorie deficit or changing your body will not you know, cover up um, mindset issues or the way you feel about your body. It, it, it is a gateway to enhance the obsessiveness around food and all of that. So just stay super self-aware, even if it is hard. But if you start to notice thoughts coming up or different things, you're like, hmm, hang on, I don't like what's what's showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, take action or stop what you're doing and then get help for sure, yeah. please, yeah. guys. Yeah, really good. Um, So we might get into it. Like Mm. we really want to be able to make sure we can give you guys some real practical knowledge today of how to guide yourself through it. Because of course, you know, we're both biased. We're both coaches. We sort of think that if you want to get the best result, you should get coaching. But, you know, if you're a seasoned dieter or, you know, you're a coach yourself, whatever it might be, and you want to really make sure that you're calculating a calorie deficit appropriately um, and setting yourself up for success, that's really what this episode is for as well. So we might kick it off. Um, The first important variable is obviously knowing what your maintenance calories is. And something that I like to speak um, a lot about with, um, you know, my clients and just in general and even know myself, and I mentioned it earlier, is when we say maintenance, like, of course, we mean maintenance calories, like what you're eating, but also maintenance output. I think it's something that a lot of people don't speak about. As I mentioned earlier, my maintenance output is genuinely like high in comparison to probably what a lot of people would be used to. Previous experiences um, like nursing, genetics, all those things is probably like altered how I adapt to, um, you know, energy output or exercise in general. So I would say like a normal step count for me is probably about 10,000, right? And for some people that might be quite high, right? Like we're all different. Um, But knowing what your maintenance output is that's going to allow you to maintain weight is also really important. And it's the reason why, like I said, me maintaining sort of like five to 7,000 steps is low output um, for me. So knowing what your maintenance calories is, like how much you're eating, but then also what your doing in terms of exercise or just daily activity or neat um, to sort of alter that equation as well. Yeah, they definitely go hand in hand. You can't just focus on changing your food and then, you know, not track your steps or not pay attention to your activities. So the less variables, the better. If you're the type of person, like, for example, when you were a midwife, Cheryl, walking around the hospitals, like 20,000 steps a day, I'm sure, maybe even more, you know, that's going to 
change the amount of calories that you can consume compared to now, you mentioned 5,000 steps. So it definitely does play a role. Um, your metabolic rate plays a role. Uh, the, the kind of training and your intensity plays a role. So yeah, just because today's episode's on a calorie deficit, you still, we want to make it clear that you still need to pay attention to what you're doing, your movements mm. and, and all of that as well. Um, in order to know what your maintenance is, I mean, the first time I ever started learning about tracking, I used one of the calculators online and there's so many different ones. Um, that gives you sort of a baseline guide. However, if you are super new, a coach, because mm. that variable or that value that might come up for your maintenance might be like that for one or two weeks. But then mm. if you start to make changes, then your maintenance can change as well. So calculators online, what would you advise, Sherelle? Yeah, look, I, I have sort of a pretty um, a pretty strong belief as well. Like I think calculators are a great starting point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I have definitely gone through a lot of different formulas um, and weaned out some really horrible ones because I was yeah. like, whoa, that's way too low or that's too high. That doesn't make sense. Um, but I have the knowledge and obviously the experience working with clients to do that. Mm-hmm. And I would hate for someone to jump on and just look up any random calculator and come back with something really low. I even know a lot of popular um, apps uh that you know give pretty shitty uh calorie recommendations yep Mm -hmm. um like a lot of popular ones, MyFitnessPal is one of them, to be honest. Like never yeah. take your calorie recommendations off MyFitnessPal. They are not for trained individuals. And everyone mm. that's listening to this probably goes to the gym, right? Sedentary people, like maybe. Um, but the more that you train and the more intensity you can put into your sessions, the more food you need as well. And a calculator is not going to be able to determine that. So calculators are not coaches, right? They are a great place to start. Um, but as we know, maintenance calories, it's not one specific target either it's moving and it's going to change and it's going to be altered Uh, and that's what a coach can help you do so yes calculators are not coaches but it can be a really good starting point for some people um if you've had some experience as well like i'm always Mm. on the fence of your first fat loss phase it can either be amazing or it can fuck you up yeah yep better off having some guidance for the first time um, and then once you know what you're doing, uh, you'll have that layer of like nutritional IQ to be able to go, that's pretty low. Like I probably don't need to drop down or mm, I know I need to go a little bit lower than what the calculator is recommending. Yeah, for sure. And another way to do it that that we love is literally just start to track what you normally would eat in a day without changing anything. So whether you put it in my fitness pal to find out, you know, how much protein, carbs and fats you're having and how many calories, or whether you just write it down yourself without tracking. So there are two ways. As long as you are spending about a week or two logging what you normally eat, um, and then you can sort of uh, weigh yourself or measure yourself um, with the tape measure or take photos accordingly. Mm. If you're not, if your measurements aren't really changing within that two weeks, you know you're roughly at about maintenance as well. So that method isn't as structured. Um, there are more variables there, but that is a way to do it without a calculator um, and without sort of rigid tracking too. So monitor what you're eating for the first week or two, see how your measurements go. If they don't change, that's your maintenance. 
Yeah, yeah, really good. That's like the two-week rule, sort of what you were yeah. saying there, Danny. Like track everything. I'm a big fan of like using body weight for that initially. Like if you're a beginner, of course, you can, you know, build muscle probably at the rate that you're going to lose fat. But for the vast majority of us, we're probably not going to fall into that category. So if you are in a deficit, um, I'm a fan of like tracking your body weight every day, like see the fluctuations, lean into them, be okay with them, learn that they're normal, um, mm. get the average and then be able to, um, you know, feel empowered that your maintenance calories probably isn't as low as what you expect or what the calculators said to you. So doing that for two weeks and then like making any changes accordingly um, or knowing what that maintenance point is for you, that's the single most important thing to start with. Like don't change anything else. Don't add in another training day. Don't do more steps. Don't do anything else. Keep your output where it is and just track everything that you eat. And the other thing that I want to say from that is I see a lot online. People be like, oh, tracking's so annoying and it takes so long. And it's, you know, and I'm like, you're doing it wrong. Like that's yes. just the first thing. You are doing it wrong. If you're spending more than five to 10 minutes on my fitness pal, you're doing it wrong. Um, and you need someone to help you show you how to track sustainably as well. So you know, make sure that you pull yourself up on that BS. Like if you're like, I can't be bothered tracking. Well, you know, you can't bother getting results um, for a period yeah. of time. And that's just the reality. Like, you know, you've, you've got to put some work in. And, you know, I'm really big on like five to 10 minutes, my fitness pal, get organized, do it early, plan your meals, and then you you won't feel restricted um, from having to track. Oh, yeah. Planning your meals before the day starts. or When I used to do it religiously, I'd plan my meals from the night before. You save so much time because then you, um, then like if you're not tracking, it takes so long. What am I going to eat today? Like lunchtime, dinner time, all of your meals, you don't know what you're doing. That takes mm. ages. You order Uber Eats, you wait 40 minutes for it to come, or you have to go out to the cafe or you're cooking. Like it takes longer to not be prepared. So yeah. that sort of nips that in the bud, the one where you say, oh, I don't have time to track. Well, you don't really have time to not track. It takes yeah. so much longer just willy-nilly going through your day without a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And like what I said earlier, it's about finding a way that's sustainable as well when it comes yeah. to a lot of this stuff for tracking. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, I found out what's sustainable for me in terms of tracking. It's not tracking cucumber anymore. No, 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 no. All right, surely we've said about seven times this episode. <laughs> no, it's but true. something else that's sustainable <laughs> for me that I find is um like what I said, I don't track non-starch vegetables. That's one thing. Um yep. I genuinely um will plan about 70 to 80 percent of my food. Like I won't go to everything to the gram when I track, but I'll track about 70, 80 percent of my food because I eat religiously the same things. And then I might leave dinner, for example, of something where Luke and I can eat together and it sort of depends on what we want. Um, and that's purely because I have the experience to know how to make up those calories as well with the meal. Um, or change things around mm. and that's just one approach that I found really helpful for me like planning my food at the start of the day one because I'm busy and I need to know that I've actually got food in the house because if not I need to send Luke down the street <laughs> <laughs> does he um, use the trolley that you used to use do you oh, still have that trolley the broly yeah no I miss <gasps> the broly what but happened to it? Well, we have to drive to the supermarket now because we're not oh. in the city. So I don't get to take, I can't take that with me to no. the, the shopping centre out of the car. I really can't be that person. <laughs> um, but even like moving from the city to um, like a regional area, I had to get out of the sort of mentality like, oh, if I didn't have something, I'd just pop down to the shops on my morning yeah. walk and always have something accessible. Now I just do like one big weekly shop with Luke. We go to the supermarket and we go to the butchers. And 
That's yeah. actually helped me become more organized with my food because I, if I don't have food, I don't have time to sort of yeah. just duck down between meetings or whatever it might be. So even though you might think that organization, like it's, I don't have time for it, like being organized and planning ahead actually saves you so much more time. And if you're serious about um, like tidying up your nutrition or, you know, doing anything in that area, uh, you should be getting organized. And if you're not willing to do that, it's probably not the right time to go into a deficit. Yeah, we have to prioritize ourselves and we constantly go in and out of times of being inundated with work or putting ourselves on the back burner, but that doesn't help anyone you need to spend that time as you said do a weekly shop you know obviously things are a lot more expensive these days um but you know work with what you can or if you don't want to do a big weekly shop then try and find a meal prep company that can help you as well there's so many companies and services that you know some of them are pre-made some of them you get the ingredients and get them cooked yourself there's so many resources out there these days. It's impossible to not be organized only um, if you just don't put in the effort. So find something that works for you. Get yourself organized. Um, so once you do find your maintenance, I think it is important to keep your calories the same and then also address am I getting enough steps in? You know, am I chained to a desk all day getting 2,000 steps only? Um, I think that is an easy variable to change before you change your nutrition. You might say the opposite, but based on what I've done, I didn't really overhaul my nutrition before I just got a bit more active because I knew I wasn't spending the time going out. I didn't value the time. I was spending a lot more time working and it was darker earlier, so I just stayed in my comfort zone got out and about um, and already that sort of sent the ball rolling in a really nice way for me. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Like I said, I went through, and even more recently, I would say, um, as I mentioned, the last fortnight, probably been chained to the desk a lot more. But the last month or so prior to that, it's been pretty good. Like I've had the option to sort of have more time where I can spend a little bit more time at the gym or be more active. Um, or I've had trips away and you're always more active when you go mm. away, like when you've got somewhere to be. Um, but prior to that, you know, like the six months in the middle of the year, like yeah. easily under 5,000 steps, um, for the vast majority of that middle portion of the year. Um, and that was one of the big reasons as well. Like, obviously, I had other factors coming into play around why I sort of didn't compete. But I was like, I don't have physically have the time to do what I need to to get my body ready. Um, it's not going to be ready because I just don't have that availability to do the work that I actually need to. So I definitely think that output's a big thing that a lot of people need to address. And I've seen it so many times where you put people into a perceived deficit um, of whatever their body might be based on their maintenance and things aren't moving. And then I'll be like, mm. okay, you ask some more questions. You're sort of like, what's going on? And then you realize that they're doing sort of 5,000 steps. And it's like, that's, it's not going to cut it. Um, even if you're perceived in a deficit, um, we're going to talk about um, metabolism phenotypes a bit later, but even if you put yourself into a deficit, if you are doing low output, your body's just going to adapt to it, uh, yep. especially as females. We have quite adaptive metabolisms and my absolute non-negotiable to start with someone in a deficit is minimum seven to 8,000 steps, especially if they've been quite sedentary, um, minimum seven to 8,000 steps. Like I don't care what you have to do. We have to get you moving because I'm not feeding you a thousand calories to get you to your end know, game man. body goals just not worth no. it no. um so yeah that's always going to be the first place and then obviously you, you're going to sort of toggle your steps up um or down depending on what your goal is like i said but you're going to use your steps as a tool or your output uh as well to make sure that you don't have to diet on low low calories 
And just for general health and well-being, I mean, getting sunlight if it's available or just getting that fresh air, going outside, your digestion, your mental health, like as humans, we should be walking, okay? So I love the guideline that you gave around sort of seven seven to 8,000 steps, perfect starting point just for general health and well-being. Um, yep. You do get people that are sort of prescribed like 20,000 steps, like on that high end, we won't yeah. push it that high. If yeah. you need to be doing that many steps, that's not good. Like yeah. A, it's very time consuming. B, it gets to a point where it doesn't create a response in the body. Again, we will talk about adaptations, but there are other ways you can use um, or other things you can do in order to get a response aside from spending three hours a day walking for sure. Yeah, it's not effective. And, no. you know, my, my general guideline for most people is sort of between eight and 15,000 steps. Like you don't, like some people have active jobs and I, I used to be there too, where you don't really have the control. Um, And I personally used to find that if I would consistently be hitting over 15,000 steps, and this isn't for everyone, but one, it wouldn't actually result in positive body composition changes. Like I actually wouldn't lose weight um, at a greater increase from doing 12,000 versus 15,000, like that extra 3,000 steps. Come on, guys, our body's smart. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, let everything go. Yeah. Um, that was the first piece. Like I didn't actually get any benefit from it. Uh, and then the second piece as well is I found that once I was hitting above that 15,000 steps consistently, it actually impacted my training, yeah. um, especially my lower body training as well. And I don't know if there's a correlation with this, but my calves didn't stop growing until of I course. freaking got off my feet. Um, well, every step you do is a calf raise. Yeah. Yep. Every single step you do is a calf raise. So, But like, they didn't start growing until I actually allowed my legs to rest properly. Oh, maybe you just hit that threshold. What, just your calves or did other things start to grow? No, just my calves. Like I always had yeah, trouble with um, ankle mobility, calves. Um, I don't know, it's a, a nurse thing, but I have to wear compression stockings because my legs would get so swollen from standing yeah. all day. Uh, I don't know if that correlates, but, you know, I was like, it's just so interesting. Like we're not designed just to be on our feet all day. You know, mm. we're designed to sort of like have breaks. And this is definitely for the people that, you know, you can control, like sit down during your lunch breaks if you can, put your feet up, rest on your rest days, like don't try and hit the same amount of steps, like try and get a maintenance amount um, and you can push it up a little bit more if you need to, especially if you're more sedentary, like, you know, um, myself or daddy. But if you're already quite active, it's not a card that I would use. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so once you find your maintenance, you've adjusted your steps accordingly, then we get into a deficit. So uh, a starting point that we like to use, and again, look, it's all relative and don't take these figures um, too literally because everyone is still so different. But as a general guideline, a deficit of 20 to 25% is a good place to start. So let's mm. just say you're having two and a half thousand calories a day as a female cutting it to sort of 2,000, for example. Um, yep. But that's relative. Again, it depends because you wouldn't go from eating 1,500 to 1,000. So if you're at that higher end, let's mm. just say you've spent your two weeks tracking, you go, okay, I'm actually sort of eating about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 calories, then you can have a bigger decrease. If you mm. found yourself eating, you know, 2,000 or 2,200, probably wouldn't slash it by 25%. So mm. it really just depends. That's why it's important to monitor what you're eating and then adjust accordingly. But for those in a, a sort of big building phase, 20 to 25 will do it. Yeah. And I think it comes down to as well, like 
the prereqs of sort of starting in a calorie deficit or a dieting phase, you should have spent, you know, sort of 60-ish months at least eating at maintenance or in a building phase. And you should have pushed your calories to like a top end of that maintenance, um, if not a surplus. So you should be starting, you shouldn't be starting at 1,500 calories, like inappropriate mm. to go into a dieting phase, but boom, already setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. You know, your calories should be well and truly for the majority of people above the 2,000 mark. Um, and then you can afford to take 20% off that and go into a dieting phase so really important that you understand that the calorie deficit or the fat loss phase is just like one layer of the onion (laughs) you know you should have done all the other things beforehand to make sure that you're not you know having to go to really extreme measures so pushing your maintenance one it's going to teach you what or how much food you can actually eat two it's going to improve your training and increase your neat and all the other things as well to make sure that you can you know maintain on the highest amount of calories possible and then three it just means you don't have to drop so low at the start you know Mm. and your body will respond so i generally find at least 20 percent of a calorie deficit so you can just take your maintenance calories literally type it in google what is 20 percent of this um (laughs) and then again start there you know monitor your progress if it's not enough then you need to go more if it's too much then let then lighten it up and don't go as aggressive um the main thing to know that with the dieting phase there is no one rule there is no one calculator uh because you have to track the data that your body's showing you and then like it's already happened then you have to go okay what has this body of data told me um that my body's doing and then what do i need to do to make sure that i can continue progressing in the way that i want yeah so many good points there and it's quite interesting because when someone decides to embark on a fitness journey they they start with a deficit straight away you know what i mean but you um bring to the table a beautiful point in that well the fitness journey or the the dieting journey should really start at a maintenance or even in a build before you go to the diet. People sort of just sign on with someone, I want to lose weight straight away, Mm -hmm. or they start dieting straight away. Now, you and I have been in that phase from, and, and we bring it up all the time, but it's a good anecdote where, you know, you were a runner, you played sport, I played sport as well. And then we went straight into a dieting phase, but we were tiny when it came to the stage, you know? So we didn't actually, for our first comp, have that maintenance or have that surplus. So then sort of after that one, we learnt and, you know, the feedback from the judges, even though you you won some of your shows, my feedback was you need more muscle, like really look like a trained athlete, you know. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. I literally went from a lifetime of sport down into a diet where I really should have gone into maintenance surplus and then gone down. Um, So it's quite interesting. Most people still get to the point where they don't feel too good about themselves they get a little bit uncomfortable they go bang straight into diet um i really would spend time at least in maintenance or at least just feeling out that phase with data before making a big change yeah absolutely and i feel like as well you know unless you need to lose weight for um health reasons you know like obesity or cardiovascular or pre-diabetic whatever it might be uh weight loss is not necessarily fat loss and i say this as well because i work with like you know a demographic of women that um (laughs) love the gym love training everyone wants to be a little bit leaner Mm -hmm. and it's about realizing that you know just because the scale isn't growing down doesn't necessarily mean that you're not making progress and i know i might be um going against sort of what i said earlier like you would anticipate it over time but as coaches we collect a body of data to be able to make conclusions of whether someone's heading in the right direction and whenever i chat with someone that you know they're like yep i want to diet i want to lose weight i want to whatever it might be i always ask the question of if you were to not lose weight 
but improve your body composition, like look more leaner, look more muscular, look more athletic, whatever the goal is, uh, would you still be happy? Would you still be okay with that? And I can see their mind ticking over because they haven't actually thought about it like that. They're sort of like, oh, I just always assume that like I would lose weight and that would mean that I was getting leaner, right? Like, and I'm always like, look, if the weight stayed the same, but your body changed, would you still be okay with that as progress? So they're always like, mm. oh yeah, well, I guess so. Of course I would be. And it's like sweet. Cause then I know that body recomposition is like usually a big thing that can happen whenever anyone changes something or starts coaching. It's always like, you've got that newbie gains by having new training styles, new training intensity, having someone make you track a little bit more diligently, um, all of these pieces as well to make sure that you can actually see the progress progress for what it is body composition changes and obviously that's Mm. really prevalent in competing right because you know like it's just it's not the same I mean like I've been on stage at 45 kilos um and you know I think I have actually more defined um legs now than what I did when I was that light because I have more muscle mass now so it's really important to have that mental shift and be okay with that being like you know what I look pretty good um but I'm heavier than what I expected you know, and then being okay with that uh, and not actually just being like a goal weight when none of us should really have a goal weight unless, you know, again, for health related reasons. That's the thing. So yeah, health related reasons, whether you're, you know, powerlifters have to get to a weight or boxers and fighters. Um, you know, there are a few sports in which you do have to get to a goal weight. However, I feel like when most people reach out to a coach asking for weight loss, what they really are asking for without realizing is body composition changes, Mm -hmm. is the power to feel good about themselves, you know, mentally, um, being able to fit into clothes. It's not really about a weight. It's just that they think that that's what they want and they haven't explored. So it's very important to reach out for the proper guidance at the start. I think it's really beneficial because it does take that level of being challenged, like what you do. You know, you mentioned that you ask, well, you know, you've come to me for weight loss, but what about body composition? And then it does take that level of having to really reflect and it may take time. Then you realize, yeah, no, hang on. I actually do want that. It's not about looking on a scale and seeing a number. Well, it shouldn't be anyway. But, you know, they're stereotypes that will take, they've been implanted in us for so, so, so long that it's going to be hard to undo it. Like, Mm. On the aeroplane back from Perth, I was watching The Devil Wears Prada. And I love that movie, but I hadn't watched it in about 10 years. And just the language that I know it's a movie, but it was really reflecting what it was like back in those times. And, you know, they were talking about size zero being the new size four and, you know, just the language that, and I won't even repeat, you know, it's a great movie, but I don't need to repeat the exact thing, but Mm. just the fixation on sizes and, you know, looks and like they were having a crack at her for eating carbs and which I know, again, it's a movie, but it was a true reflection of what it was like in that time. So Mm. we can't blame people for after hearing it and watching it in movies and, you know, it's been implanted in our mind for so long. It will take a long time or, you know, some self-reflection to come out of those habits if you can, hopefully you can, but definitely talk to a coach or a dietitian or a nutritionist, you know, not just someone with coach in in their bio who hasn't actually done any nutrition study um reach out for help it's really important at the start just so you can understand yourself as well 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like our generation, like we got started with all of that shitty advice um, and we're sort of playing catch up now. I, I'm I'm fearful that like trends repeat themselves and I know that like that skinny era um, was What so did they strong. call it? Heroin chic. Yeah. It's cooked. It's so good. <laughs> but you are listening to the wrong podcast if that's what yeah. you're listening to. So yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it's so easy to forget things like that. And But, you know, outside of our bubble, you know, that's that's a big percentage of the world still mm. thinking that, you know, carbs make them fat or they're fearful of fruit or whatever it might be. Um, and I just think it's so important to, yeah, like educate ourselves and get as much knowledge as we can and then share it with the world as well. So really, yeah. really good there, Danny. Yeah. So in terms of, and we've touched on when should you get guidance and when not, you know, if you're new, 100% get guidance. Um, If you're unsure on your goals or what you actually want, if you're unsure on certain food groups and you don't really know what you're doing, which is totally common and, and normal, just get help from the right person. If you've been doing it for a while, if you've got a great um, relationship with food, with yourself, um, then, you know, play around with flexibility. If you know how to track or if you know how to eyeball foods, you'll know when you're ready to give it a go and you'll know when you're ready because you'll just feel okay about it and not be scared. Mm -hmm. If you still feel a bit scared, get help. If you feel like you want to experiment, experiment. You know, nothing's going to change overnight. In a week, you can't stuff everything up. You're not going to lose 10 kilos or put on 10 kilos in a week, you know, obviously, unless you make really drastic changes. Um, So you'll know when you're ready. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the th- other things that I think is really important for people to be aware of is something called metabolic adaptation. And we've definitely touched on this in previous episodes um, as well. But in short, like metabolic adaptation is just basically our body's survival mechanism of downregulating energy output um, as a response to lowering your energy input. Uh, so when we cut calories, um, our body, it, it wants to survive. It doesn't actually want to lose weight. It doesn't want to lose um, tissue uh, as a result. So it down-regulates our um, basal metabolic rate or our coma calories, like how many calories our body needs just to <laughs> coma calories. I feel like everyone understands that. It's like, oh, yeah, if I was in a coma, this is the amount of calories that my body would burn just to stay alive. That's yeah. essentially what BMR is. Mm. Um, and then we have other aspects that make up our metabolism, one being um, NEAT, like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that's blinking, that's fidgeting, that's just what our body does in terms of movement. Um, that tends to downregulate a little bit as well. And then we've also got um, thermic effect of food, which is basically, our digestion takes up a big chunk of um, burning calories as well. So we've got all these types of um, processes that happen in our body that can downregulate as a result of cutting calories. And they even showed, I remember reading a study on this, they even showed that our organs atrophy when we um, sit in a um, prolonged calorie deficit. Like our liver shrinks um, Mm. when we're sitting in a calorie deficit for too long. So if you think that you're going to like, you know, um, like have metabolic adaptation like good luck it doesn't actually work and you know refeeds and diet breaks and all this sort of stuff is being disproven as being effective for preventing or delaying metabolic adaptation as well yeah we went into some great scientific detail with luke tullick and holly baxter we were so lucky to have those guys on the podcast so if you want a bit more science around metabolic adaptation have a listen to those awesome episodes. Um, But you do notice that if you're a bit more tired and you haven't really eaten much, you do sort of lean on your hand a bit more or you slump in your chair. So 
posture um, sort of deteriorates when we're tired. You just hang off your ligaments because it takes the body energy to use your muscles and sort of stand and sit upright. So we subconsciously go into all of these survival mechanisms, which it's so clever, but then also so annoying if you are trying to lose weight because naturally your body goes into energy saving mode and it always comes back down to survival. So knowing about these little things are important too, because then it allows you to broaden your vision on the kind of processes that happen in your body. And that's why it's not as simple as just eating less. Okay. People still think that that's the answer. It's not. Our bodies are so smart. Mm. And this is why spending time at maintenance is super important um, because you get that opportunity to sort of like restore any physical, but then also psychological fatigue that you might be having from eating low calories and set yourself up for the long run because, you know, everyone wants to do mini cuts and quick fat loss phases. And the reality is like no one loses weight as quickly as I'd like to. It usually takes longer than what most people anticipate. So Mm. you have to be going in um, psychologically ready. to be hungry and eat lower calories than what you're used to, right? Low calories is subjective. So everyone's got to eat low calories, um, subjective and relative to their actual body to be able to lose weight. Mm. Um, But something that I think is like really important and what you learn with time is understanding like what your metabolic phenotype is. And basically we can think of like this as um, personalities, right? Like extrovert, introvert, like we all have natural tendencies. That's sort of what a phenotype is. Um, And we all have different phenotypes. And there's two main categories uh, that sort of they break it down and one's thrifty and one's spend thrifty. And you guys are going to be able to identify and you'll be like, fuck, that's me so much. (laughs) Um, We are are probably more thrifty, I would say, Danny. And basically thrifty metabolisms, um, they're the ones that adapt to calorie deficits relatively quickly yeah. um, or we might have to lower our calories lower than anticipated. Like on the calorie calculator, for example, it might be a 30 to 40% deficit um, by the end of the fat loss phase, but we're not really in a deficit by that, like that much of a deficit by the end because our body's just adapted. So it's still probably a 20% deficit. Mm. Um, so they're the ones that might have to spend longer dieting or have to do more cardio or they might have to lower calories um, more aggressively than what they would like because their bodies are just more adaptive. So that's the the thrifty. And then the spend thrifty is the ones that tend to increase their energy expenditure um, in response to overfeeding. Um, so these are the people that call themselves the hard gainers. They struggle to build muscle. Um, they they always want to gain and they tend to lose weight quite easily. Uh, so that's the spend thrifty ones. And they have like quite an efficient um, metabolism as well. So they tend to speed up. Um, they're the ones that are always fidgeting. It's your skinny friend in high school that just ate meat pies all the time. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And they tend to have to eat more calories um, as a result to try and build uh, muscle mass. So the piece I want to say around that is like have a think about which one you sit in because this will impact significantly your maintenance calories um, and, you know, what a calculator spits back at you as well. Uh, And I will say like even though a lot of this is very much genetic as well, lifestyle still plays a massive component. So this is going to impact what your BMR is, like your coma calories this um, metabolism, but then we have lifestyle factors that come on top of that. Um, And I always use one of my coaches, Maddie, and even Beck as an example, actually, they can eat like 
up of 3000 calories with sedentary jobs, mm. um, normal training and maintain body weight. Like Mads is like killing to gain weight in a hard build. And I'm like, we're gonna have to go up again. Um, and it's just a different metabolism to me. Um, if I had that many calories, like I would be, <laughs> We'd be balloons. Exactly. I'd be very <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, but it would probably be like a 30% surplus for me. Yeah. Whereas for Maddie, her body's just adapting to the increased energy um, and speeding up. Whereas some, like not everyone does that. So knowing what camp you fall in is going to help you understand like how to go into fat loss phases and like, you know, the majority of your year, you know, Maddie should be spending eating at maintenance um, or above or in a surplus to really maximize the building potential. So knowing yeah. what phenotype you are can be really helpful for building phases um, and especially fat loss phases. Cause I don't waste time just dropping down by 10%. Like I don't waste time because my metabolism just adapts. So I'm like, well, just slashing 150 calories ain't doing shit for me. Um, <laughs> I'm quite adaptive. I need to have a good jump. Whereas for Maddie, she might not need to, you know, mm. like I might just take a tiny bit off and I'm like, oh, here we go. It's easy for you. But <laughs> I will say something. It's neither good nor bad. It just, no. right. Yeah. Because um, people, it's like, you know, straight hair, curly hair. Everyone with curly hair wishes they have straight hair. Everyone with straight hair wishes they have curly hair. Maddie doesn't want to eat that many calories. She hates no. it. She hates having to feel full all the time. Um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I wish I could diet on, you know, two and a half thousand calories. But, like, it's neither good nor bad because I build muscle quite easily. I don't have yeah. to, you know, like force feed myself. And, yeah, and I just really wanted to highlight that because some people might go, oh, how easy. But it's it's not always the case. They all have that. Thank you for, for explaining all that. It's very cool. Um, we're definitely that thrifty body type, which is interesting because when I was younger, I would have thought I would have been the opposite. Um, but there are so many factors that come down to it. But I think it is genetic. As you get older, obviously, we were more active when we were younger. And that's why the body types look different. But then sort of at a natural um, resting state, almost, you know, you and I do adapt. Like when we're dieting, our body changes. Mm. But when we're eating, our body changes quite easily. Um, and you have to, yes, the grass may always be greener, but you just have to roll with what you are and who you are. It's totally fine. There are positives and negatives in both. Um, people, you know, you mentioned um, Beck and Maddie, but then also some guys as well, like one of the guys at the gym has to eat 8,000 calories every day. Every day he has to eat a pizza and he's fucking mm. sick of it. You know, yeah. it would be people's dream to eat a pizza every day, but he's gotten to the point where he's like, I can't do it. This pizza and ice cream every night is killing me. Like he yeah. looks amazing, but you know, all of those calories too can be a burden. So you just have to try and reframe your thoughts and mm. just go along with what you are. Um, yeah. But we all did have that friend or you might be that person that literally doesn't really put on weight. I've got a question though, because I, how much of personality types have a role in it? Because I noticed that a lot of my friends who can kind of get away with eating more are way more energized. Like they're you know, psychotic. They're just so fun and bubbly, but then they have a bit of an anxious energy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's just a small pool of people that I've been hanging around with. Um, but I tend to notice that those guys are just bouncing off walls all mm. the time. Is it a case of chicken or the egg or is that a thing? Yeah, so we've definitely spoken about this before with um, the 
body types, um, mesomorph, endomorph, um, what's the last ectomorph. one? Ectomorph. Um, where that principle itself has nothing to do with like the body and more mm-hmm. the personality. It was actually a concept designed by a psychologist um, to sort of say that, you know, people that tend to be the hard gainers, um, the endomorphs, the ones, yeah, it's the endomorphs and the ectomorphs is the ones that sort of are leaner in general. Leaner or yeah. ecto, yeah. Yeah. The ectomorphs in general, they're actually defined by more of an anxious personality. Yeah, okay, um, there you go. Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> because never underestimate, like, you know, stress, anxiety. I know a lot of people, Catabolic. you know, yeah, a lot of people like, you know, that have experienced those sorts of things. Like weight loss is one of the big things because not only do you move more and you burn more energy as a result of it, you tend to forget to eat. Um, you'll notice mm. from these people as well, daddy, they never finish their food. Um, they always, they always like sort of forget to eat and do those distracted sort of as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I've definitely noticed that um, in certain people. So it's sort of like, are you tracking all of that because you didn't finish that last piece and all those things sort of add up right they might track the whole pizza but then leave the crust you know so it's all of those pieces as well to make sure that you can sort of and obviously it's a sliding scale too like I I don't believe that we fall into a specific category because there's been times where I've been an ectomorph and a mesomorph and an endomorph um and yeah I think that sort of those terms have been taken out um of context but when we look at actual like metabolic phenotypes it's it's excluding our lifestyle it's not really looking at lifestyle like i've said to maddie before you have to keep your steps low like you you need to track your steps so you don't go overboard right because they naturally move more and they expend more energy but it doesn't just stop at that it's the fidgeting it's all those other processes so you can do things to try and work around it but it's like it's going to happen like metabolic adaptation is a response to changing input um it's not a thing that we do wrong it's not something that we can work around it's 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 just a response to doing it the same with fat loss and the same with surpluses yeah and we do all react to stress differently you know physically and mentally and the nature of this podcast has really highlighted that there's not one answer. And no. if we were on TikTok right now and trying to get likes and clickbait, we would have stopped the podcast after saying, go in a 20% deficit. The end. It would have been 10 <laughs> seconds of content. It would have got a million freaking views and, you know, shares and all of that bullshit that happens. But, you know, we've been talking so long about all the different factors, mm. about all the level of self-awareness, about the monitoring, the discussion back and forth the the changing like there is so much in body composition you know working on your digestion you know mm-hmm. trying to stay really calm and and calm down any anxious thoughts you know getting educated there's so much in it that mm-hmm. I love that we haven't as always just given one bullshit answer that everyone else does like yeah it's it's not as simple as that guys yeah. And I think as well, something to really highlight is that the people with the spend thrifty metabolisms that, you know, are hard gainers and they really struggle to sort of like put on size or put on muscle and have to eat a lot of food, they are probably outliers. Like I would say it's not yeah. a very common um, thing. It's definitely like on the, you know, in the sort of the 10th percentile. However, um, I've definitely had clients um, come to me that have used calculators or even, you know, past coaching experiences where they've been put on stock standard, like 1800 to 2000 calories as like a 60 something kilogram female etc and then I I just don't even look at the calories I just look at the data and if like they're losing weight or they're maintaining and I push it a little bit more and push a little bit more and I just you don't look at the standard of what you should be doing um I've definitely built I, like one client comes um in my mind where she's eating 1200 calories more um 
spendthrifty metabolism. Mm. Then when she started with me and built a significant amount of muscle mass, but her weight's barely changed. And it just goes to show that if you always do what the standard is, you'll never know if you're one of these outliers because your yeah. body's just going to adapt to that. Like her body was just adapted to it. And when you start feeding her more, she just got hungry and was like, oh my yeah. God, and everything speeds up as a result. And that's a great place because not only do you get to eat more food and we all love calorie dense food, um, but you get more carbohydrates on board, which is going to improve your training. Um, more food in general means that more micronutrients, more vitamins, more minerals, um, all of those things, which make you feel fantastic. And it just complements everything that you're trying to do. Like you get an opportunity to really accelerate your growth. Um, so knowing that again, calculators are not coaches, uh, they're a great starting point, but if you're not willing to push the budget and sort of like try and push your maintenance calories or the opposite end, like maybe you've got a really adaptive metabolism and your calories have to get really shitty low. That's just what you have to do. Like whether yeah. you like it or not, that's just that's just your 20% deficit. Um, if you're not willing to push yourself there, and I've had situations where I've had clients that have had to get pretty low, especially competing, uh, and that's just the reality of competing. But, you know, where you start in maintenance calories, your calories can usually become quite high and inflated. And if your calories have to get a 1,000 lower in a fat loss phase at the end of it, that's just what it is. And most people with good reason, especially if they're doing this for the first time on their own, probably shouldn't do that to themselves. But if you've got someone that's, you know, been like, yeah, look, this is still fine. All your data's fine. This is quite normal. Like, then that's okay too. Yeah, you will know the level of hunger that is needed after you do it a few times. A lot of people mm. go straight into a diet on their own think that they should be feeling hungry 24-7. They prolong their meals. They fast. They do all these, you know, excessive things that are unnecessary. Yes, you're going to feel hungry at, in phases, but it's not meant to mm. impact your well-being, you know. Look, even if you're maybe two weeks out from a show, you're going to feel a bit, you're going to feel tired. You're going to be hangry. You're going to, you know, not be able to concentrate as well. That's normal for a comp prep. However, your whole dieting experience shouldn't be like that. As you no. said, you know, eating more food is the goal to actually lose weight. And what people take for granted is food quality. So you could start your dieting phase by actually keeping the calories the same, but swapping the kind of foods you're eating, you know, cut out some processed foods. Still, we love the 80-20 rule, but people still think that flexible dieting means eat everything that's made out of sweeteners. You know, yes, people get creative with recipes and they use stevia and they use all these things, but at the end of the day, it's not real food and it will make you more hungry. Um, a lot of people, you know, eat the the pretend sugar and then crave real sugar anyway and then just end up eating the thing that they're avoiding in the first place. So try and play around with the quality of your food. As you mentioned, calorie-dense, beautiful foods like to nourish your body and then you can still achieve body composition through that. Like that's mm. how I did it. I started like lost a couple of kilos recently, went on more walks and just made food swaps, honestly, and you start to crave sugar less, the processed food less, like that is a great starting point. Follow the 80-20 rule. You don't have to be super strict and rigid, but know that, hey, you're taking your body through a high phase of stress right now, which is a dieting phase. Um, you need to nourish your body with good food. 
Mm, yeah. And just to add on top of that, like literally by changing up your food sources and choosing more whole foods, like you're increasing the thermic effect of food, which is Perfect. one of those portions that make up the metabolism, which essentially is impacting your um, energy input, right? And this is why calories in and calories out, like not all calories are the same. And I'd get shot on the internet if I said that out loud, but <laughs> they're not. Like you can't tell me like, you know, a hundred calories from carrot is the same as a hundred calories from chocolate. Like that thermic effective food is so different. Our body, our digestion is going to burn more calories just processing the carrot um, than what it would with the chocolate. It's going to absorb it. It's like there's no no filter there. It's like straight in the bloodstream. So understanding that you can do those small things uh, and they do make a big difference um, throughout, you know, your fat loss phases or whatever it might be is so important. Um, And the last thing I wanted to touch on because you did prompt it, Danny, is there's two types of hunger. Like we we have physiological hunger where it's like your stomach's hungry, like you're, you know, you're physically low energy, you feel hungry all the time. That's that physiological effect where your body's responding due to hormones and changes yep. and just not having food in your stomach. Um, but then there's also psychological hunger as well, where people just crave chocolate or they crave calorie dense foods. And it's no surprise that when we're in dieting phases, especially for a longer period of time, that we start dreaming about food and fixating about food. And you see it all the time with comp prep. Like they have, they save photos of food porn. It's so unhealthy. I can't do that. That sends me the opposite. So bad. It's Mm. so bad. And we've spoken about this before, like people binging backstage on cookies and chocolate, such an unhealthy um, thing to do to your brain because- that psychological hunger or physiological, um, sorry, yes, psychological hunger. I love the advice of like, yes, include more fiber, eat whole foods, but don't cut everything else out because you'll probably find that the 500 calories that you eat from a halo top, if you just had like, you know, a scoop of real ice cream on a cone um, and actually tasted the real full fat ice cream, you'd probably be more satisfied and actually eat less calories. Uh, So understanding that it's not always just about stuffing your face with as much volume. There's two types of hunger and yes, food volume is going to impact that physical hunger as well. Um, but don't cut all the good things out because psychological hunger, and we all know how important mindset is um, for willpower and discipline. I know that if I have like meals out and I make sure that I can eat the treats that I like, I can feel like psychologically content and not that I'm feeling deprived at all. So I think it's really important to know that when it comes to dieting. I know. And then having like one ice cream, again, it's all relevant. It's not going to change the habits that you've created throughout the week you know like you just yeah it it's easier said than done though because I think I've been in I haven't been in any extremes but you do get into such a routine where you're like oh no I better not have that or I better not do this but I think the best way is to just try and pace yourself have a little bit as you said one scoop of ice cream or one bit of chocolate if you can. If you know you're one of those people that just can't stop at one or two pieces, then obviously don't. Um, But it is important for you to still incorporate, you know, that kind of um, flexibility in small levels. And then Mm. you'll notice the next day, oh, actually, I feel really cool that I was able to go out and have an ice cream with my friends. And then now I continue my processes and you make that a part of your process, like make it part of your routine rather than isolating that behavior 
labeling it as bad, labeling it as off the plan or, you know, a cheat meal, like include it in your lifestyle. And that's why Mm. I was sort of using the terms, what did I call it? A lifestyle deficit. And I really love that because it doesn't really ostracize certain behaviors. You just become more aware. Mm. But at the end of the day, become aware of your thoughts. And if you find yourself slipping into mentalities that you don't recognize again, okay, put the brakes on a little bit, try and talk to someone about it because you don't want to send yourself too far into an extreme because it can happen. And that's the thing with our industry. Like it's, it's hard to separate the two, you know, Mm -hmm. tracking versus obsessiveness or, you know, eating out versus binging. Like there's so many blurred lines. So just please, we're doing our best to guide you based on personal experience. But at the end of the day, there's a lot that is out of our scope. So the good news is there are resources out there, a little bit hard to find, but you can get help. So tune in, be self-aware, own that power that you have, Mm. um, and then ask people for help. It's totally cool to learn from other people. Yeah. And even like a message for coaches as well. Like, I think it's important. This is just like for a lot of coaches actually listening. Um, It's really important to understand the variety with nutrition as well. And I think a lot of online coaches, they get trapped in um, thinking that all their clients are like them. Like all my, yeah. all clients have adaptive metabolisms. You know, they all sort of eat around this. I should use this calculator for everyone. Everyone should start at this amount of deficit or whatever. And if you think like that, you know, you're going to like Maddie would be like zero kilos should be dead <laughs> if I dieted her like I diet me. So it's about understanding that we're all different and we have to, as coaches, remove that lens. Um, like even for, um, you know, Maddie and Beck, like I was saying, when we have our coaches workshops, they're like, man, I'd be hungry if I was eating that little amount of calories because to them it would be like a 60% deficit Mm. um but I'm like a 20% deficit is a 20% deficit you know for for anyone regardless of what your starting point is and that's why percentages are great um rather than saying oh yeah cut off 300 calories that's not helpful for someone that has a really adaptive metabolism so it's about understanding like data is everything when it comes to nutrition data is everything if you're not tracking you're guessing at a lot of this stuff and that's fine for some people but for the majority of us especially coaches like we're not guessing results um and if we don't get the data we can't make the best educated decisions so the more data that you have from yourself or your clients the more accurate um you can uh, make your coaching decisions and i have no qualms with saying look i don't if you want to go on deficit i don't have any data to work with um so I'm not, I'm not willing to do it, you know, and I'm pretty firm on that with a lot of stuff. It's sort of like, look, if you haven't weighed in this week or if you haven't done these sort of things, like barring other reasons, of course, I'm not changing anything. And that's that's a really, really good coaching decision. So I wanted yep. to give that just for anyone um, like that is coaching people through deficits. Like don't feel like you've got to chop and change things all the time. Um, make sure that you've got a different lens, that everyone is different and your clients very well. Like if you've got 20 to 40 clients very well, you've probably got an outlier in there. Um, so make sure that you're challenging everyone. Um, and then, yeah, don't feel like you have to make decisions when you don't have the right data that you need. And then if it's out of your scope, just refer out. You're going to get people that aren't adherent or you, you're going to get people that just want to slash calories and change mm. everything every week. You're going to get those cheeky clients who just think they come to you for help, but then apparently they know how it's all done. <laughs> so never give up your authentic views on health and well-being. just if your client is a little bit demanding. That's where I suppose the pre-screening process, whether it be a phone call or a questionnaire, you know, get deep with that, get to know them and their goals, whether they're willing to open up to you, whether they're willing to be educated by you. Um, Because, yeah, you can easily just take someone on and then just 
you don't feel good about the whole process. So if you start to think, hey, you know, I've tried my best, it's getting a little bit out of my scope, or I don't feel comfortable with the methods that they're asking me for, have that conversation and try and direct them elsewhere. There's no point you building a bad name and having bad feelings about yourself um, based on being in a sticky situation. And you can get that a lot with any kind of coaching, whether it be nutrition or training or mindset, whatever business, whatever people come for coaching for now, just stick with your values for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, compliance is a whole nother conversation. We no, never it's another that. episode. It's another it? episode. Obviously, it's the single most important thing. But if you're collecting red flags and you're like, geez, yeah. they should be losing on this or, you know, like what you said, Danny, even with training, like even other areas, if things aren't adding up, they're probably not, right? I think mm-hmm. um, we've got to learn to listen to our gut as coaches with a lot of that sort of stuff. And it's sort of like, you know, should I be questioning other things here? Or, you know, there's one of two things here and I hope it's a compliance issue because it's not I'm actually like physically concerned that someone's going to get calories this low or do this amount of output to to get a result and get things moving Uh, but yeah really well said daddy really well said thanks Sherelle time to wrap it up I think what do you reckon yeah, I think that's enough. Um, <laughs> we really did want to sort of try and give you guys some info on how to calculate and adhere to a calorie deficit, but I think we might flip the script on that title yeah. a little bit. Um, but we definitely went into a lot of other stuff, which I think is super helpful to understand. So, you know, knowing where to start when it comes to a calorie deficit, super important. And then, of course, understanding like, you know, how your metabolism works and some considerations around that equally is important as well. So we hope that all of you guys listening uh, could take something from the episode. And if you did, make sure that you share it on your Instagram story or share it with a friend um, that's embarking on a fat loss phase as well. I'm sure some of the info in here would be able to help. Thanks everyone. See you next time.